News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I love it when we get the chance to talk about space, you know, and once again, the James Webb Space Telescope has delivered on that. A team of astrophysicists has apparently discovered half a dozen mature giant galaxies, and nobody really knows where they came from or when. Now, for more on this deep space mystery, we're joined now by Erica Nelson, who's a co-researcher and assistant professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder. Erica, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, tell me about these galaxies. What do we know at this point? Um, These galaxies are very enigmatic. They're super surprising. Uh, I mean, I, we just, we didn't expect to see, see things like this. I mean, so I, you know, I was looking at these first images that came down and one of, one of these images had these objects that are, you know, they're bright and they're red and they weren't in the Hubble image at all. And it turns out that, you know, some of these things are these ancient massive galaxies that just shouldn't be there. What do you mean they shouldn't be there? Uh, yeah, I mean, good question. Um, so they, the the universe kind of started from, you know, it started from, we think the Big Bang, you know, 14 billion years ago, all of everything was, uh, came into being. Um, and from there, you know, there was, there was essentially no structure at all in the universe. And gradually, atoms formed, and then stars formed, and then eventually galaxies started forming. But basically, you the little things start forming first, and then you they get bigger and bigger. And so these things are really, really big and really, really early. So we just didn't think that there should be time for such big things to form so fast. Right. But as you say, that's what we thought, right? So obviously, we thought wrong. <laughs> well, we'll see. You know, we got to... There's... um. As science goes, you have to confirm everything a bajillion times before you upturn a very long-standing model model of the universe. Um, so, you know, we need to get we need to get more data on these things. But if they turn out to be right, then yeah, that's going to be a big problem for our our model of the universe. What does that upend then? How does that change things about the way we think of the universe? Um, so we, we it upends this notion that that big galaxies took billions of years to form. You know, that's, it's kind of foundational to our, our understanding of how, how the universe has come to evolve to today. And that just, if, if these galaxies are real, then that just isn't the case. So what are the, how do we take the next steps then to figure out more about this? Yeah, so we, I mean, the big thing is we need to get some more data. So right now we've just taken pictures of them. Um, and, you know, this isn't probably a common statement in, in everyday existence. But for us, you know, we say a picture is worth a thousand words and a spectrum is worth a thousand pictures. So we need a spectrum. Um, so we need to get spectra of these of these bad boys to see if uh, it's to see if the physical properties that we've kind of inferred from just taking pictures of them are actually what they have. Right. No, so this is all about the James Webb telescope here, Erica, because we've talked about this with other um, astrophysicists as well and astronomers who say, without this telescope, man, like we are learning so much because of it. Yes, absolutely. This is, this is all James Webb all day. You know, it's just such a powerful instrument. We've never been able to look this far back into time because it's, 
it's, you know, it can see these infrared wavelengths and it can see such faint uh, objects so distant that it, it really has completely changed our understanding of the universe. It's, it's an incredible telescope. So these giant galaxies that you were able to see, what do we know about them? Well, we know that, well, we think we know. What we, what we think we know about them is that um, they basically are have the n- same number of stars as our Milky Way galaxy does now. So we live in a you know pretty standard galaxy for this time in the history of the universe, the Milky Way, um, and it has about 100 billion stars. And we think that these galaxies, um, some of these galaxies had already formed 100 billion stars except right after the universe began. You know, and so they had to form all of these stars really quickly. Um, and so they have about the same number of stars as the Milky Way, but they look nothing like our galaxy does. You know, if you lived in one of these galaxies, the sky would just be absolutely luminous with stars and all these swirls of hot gas and dust. It would be a really, it would be a very different experience if you lived on a planet in one of these, in one of these galaxies. Right. So is this similar to the Milky Way? In terms of the actual number of stars, they you know some of them are, but in terms of how how they must have formed, they're remarkably different because the the Milky Way took 14 billion years to form, and these things are forming in a very small fraction of that. So the you know the the physics, the, all the things that have to happen in order to make a galaxy must have been entirely different. You know, because the universe around them looked very different then. You know, the universe now, it's very kind of cold. It's kind of sparse. You know, our neighbors are pretty far away. You know, it's like you're living out in the country. But if you if you lived in, like, in, in the very early universe, everything was really close together. Everything was really dense. It's like living in downtown. And so, the, you know, the kind of objects that are forming there are just very different. So are we talking about having to rewrite textbooks here? I mean, ideally, <laughs> you know, it's a, that's what we always hope for. We always hope that, you know, that with new telescopes, we'll actually be able to learn something fundamentally new about our universe. So, you know, if, if we end up being able to confirm, confirm a lot of these objects, then, then hopefully we will indeed have to write, rewrite textbooks to, to reflect what we're learning about the universe. That is so fascinating. So what is the timeline like then? Like you have to confirm you said more about these galaxies. How do, how do we do that? How long till we do that? Um, well, it depends on, you know, it's the, the you know, the Space Telescope Science Institute in, um, in, the, in Baltimore um, has to, you know, organize all the scheduling of all of these different observations of the universe. So hopefully it'll happen, you know, in the next, uh, in the next several months. But you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we will. Erica, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thanks so much for having me. That's great. That's Erica Nelson, co-researcher and assistant professor of astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder, talking about these new discoveries, courtesy of the James Webb Space Telescope, of six mature giant galaxies. And they say it is completely rethinking what astrophysicists and astronomers know and believe about how galaxies form and how long that takes could be the rewriting of the textbooks that's going on here too. Fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, officially spring is here. 
thank goodness. I don't know about you, but I've already started my onion plants from seed. Yesterday, I started preparing for my tomatoes. Like, I am ready to get this growing season underway. Now, it happens every year, right? Between March 19th and March 21st, we get that spring equinox, the first day of spring. And then, of course, days are getting longer all the time. Nights finally starting to get shorter. So we all know this happens at this time of year. But you know what? Around the world, every culture has its own way of marking it and marking how significant this is. Our producer, Bianca Rego, spoke with Sabina Malioko, who's a folklorist and Professor of Sociological Anthropology at UBC to find out how these traditions have kind of transformed our modern-day celebrations. So what is the spring equinox? So the spring equinox is actually an astronomical occurrence that happens when the sun is between the winter and the summer solstice and it crosses the equator. So it's, it's a point at which the day and the night, in other words, the number of light and dark hours, are close to equal, depending on the latitude at which you live. How have people observed and celebrated this throughout history? The spring equinox has for a very long time been recognized ceremonially with rituals and celebrations by people all over the Northern Hemisphere as the official beginning of spring. Another way that people uh, celebrate is by jumping over bonfires. Now, you mustn't think giant burning bonfires. You have to wait until it burns down and you're actually just jumping over the embers. But jumping over the embers of bonfires is popular in Turkey, in parts of Iran, in many parts of Central Asia. And it celebrates putting behind us the adversity of winter and coming into a new season. Other customs associated with this holiday, particularly among uh, Iranians and Persians, even Persian Canadians and Iranians, is the making of a table called a haft sin. And a haft sin is a table with seven objects on it. All of them are related to the new year and to the coming of spring. You might have apples, nuts. Some people put a little goldfish in a bowl of water on the Haftzin table. We have documentation that people were observing this as the beginning of the new year. And in fact, throughout much of the Northern Hemisphere, in many, many cultures, the new year used to be celebrated on or around the spring equinox and not on January 1st. So people observed the signs of life returning all around them thanks to the advent of the spring season. And to the earliest humans, this was very important because it signaled a coming end to the difficult winter season, a season of of privation. Especially in the northern latitudes, people had trouble surviving sometimes because of the lack of food. So with the spring equinox, that promise of a summer of plenty, that promise of calmer days, uh, days of survival, days of happiness and thriving was, was right on the horizon. That's so interesting to think about, especially considering that the spring equinox symbolizes this rebirth and this transition into basically like a new era. It's interesting to think that we don't use this to mark our new year and instead we use January 1st. Well, that actually came later. So, for example, here in Canada, for many years into the colonization of Canada until about 1752, people observed the new year around the end of March, usually around March 25th, which is just a few days after the spring equinox. And they, in fact, used to do this throughout Europe. 
It's only with the switch from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, which happened in 1582, that January 1st was officially declared as the beginning of the new year by the Pope. Now, the reason that it caught on much later, about 200 years later, in Canada and in the North American colonies, is because they were Protestant. And so they were not going to let some pope tell them what to do. So for about 200 years, between 1582 and 1752, the Protestant parts of Europe observed the beginning of the new year around March 25th. And the rest of Europe, the Catholic parts of Europe, observed it on January 1st. How's that for confusing? We think daylight savings time is confusing, but imagine having different different parts of a region observe the new year at different times. And in fact, our custom of April Fool's Day dates from that time, where people who still observe the new year at the end of March, beginning of April with springtime, were considered fools. They were foolish because they they hadn't updated to the new rules that said that the day began actually on January 1st. So that's where our idea of April Fools came about. And our custom of playing tricks to fool people on April 1st dates to that switch. Are there any other traditions or holidays that we celebrate today that are related to how people used to observe the spring equinox? Well, the celebration of Easter among Christians is related to the equinox because it is timed based on the equinox. Easter is timed to coincide with the first full moon following the spring equinox. And if you think about Easter celebrations on the secular side, you can see that many of the symbols associated with new life are associated with the secular commemoration of Easter. Things like decorated eggs, things like rabbits, symbols of fertility, things like chicks, which relate directly to the fact that birds are reproducing right now. If you had real chickens, well, they'd be laying more eggs and and most of them would be actual chicks. So all of these things relate directly to the seasonal cycle. That is our producer, Bianca Rega, who is speaking with Sabina um, Malioko, I should say, folklorist and professor of sociological anthropology at UBC, talking about the traditions of spring equinox and how they have transformed our modern day celebrations. So all because it brings us warmer, longer days. And historically, that has always been something to celebrate. It's time to grow. I think that also has a lot to do with it, too. As I was saying, getting busy in the garden or starting to think about the things that you are going to plant. I've been waiting all winter for that, right? I've been making my little diagrams, figuring out where I'm going to plant stuff, which seeds I have to start indoors, writing everything down. And now it's ready to execute that plan, put it into action. What are you going to grow this year? Let me know what's going on in your garden. Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, we keep a close eye on our endangered resident killer whale population here on the South Coast. And we know that in the last 10 years, we've seen those numbers go down, right? And there's a lot of concern about that. So what is the reason why that is happening? Is it the environment? Is it the fact that the whales themselves perhaps don't have enough diversity in their DNA to keep thriving? Well, let's talk more about that now, actually, with people who research this. It's Dr. Kim Parsons, a supervisory research biologist at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center. Dr. Parsons, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for inviting me. 
Okay, so when we talk about these resident killer whales, is it their is it their DNA? Are they not getting enough kind of genetic diversity to thrive? Well, what we've seen from the recent study is that this does seem to be part of the puzzle. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that these, you know, there isn't any one thing that's acting in isolation, that there's a number of different factors affecting the population. And some of the work that we've looked at in the past, um, you know, highlights uh, interactions with the presence of boats or noise in their environment, decreased prey abundance and all these external factors. But now we have some strong evidence to suggest that there's also an intrinsic or internal factor that, that is also playing a role um, in the whale's recovery. Okay, what are these internal factors? So we, we looked at um, the genomic diversity across the whole genome of 100 different individuals. Um, and what we saw is that there is a high level of inbreeding in the southern resident killer whale population. And we were able to compare that to Alaska resident killer whales were bigs and transient killer whales, for example. Um, and the, the rate of inbreeding in the southern resident killer whales is significantly higher. Um, and it is also correlated with a decreased survival. So something that we would refer to as inbreeding depression, where we're seeing the knock-on fitness effects on individuals of these, these levels of inbreeding. How did they cope with this in the past then? Was there a bigger whale population for them to choose from? Yeah, I think certainly there would have been a bigger population many, many years ago, um, probably some thousands of years ago. But the southern resident killer whales have been a small population for quite a long time, probably for um, the last couple of hundred years at least. And so, you know, this is something that the, as the population gets smaller, um, there's just no genetic diversity coming into the population because what we're seeing is that all the breeding between individuals happens within the southern resident killer whale population. So there isn't any introduction of new genetic diversity um, to kind of give them a little bit more of an adaptive edge. Is there any way to combat this? Unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do about um, who whales breed with. And, you know, other wildlife populations that have suffered from similar low levels of genetic diversity, high levels of inbreeding, um, there have been management options for, you think about like terrestrial animals or smaller animals where they can translocate and move individuals from one population to another. But, you know, with killer whales, they're a large species, they're long-lived, they're free-ranging. Um, there's really not a lot we can do to combat the inbreeding or, or introduce genetic diversity. And we know that they have lots of opportunities in the wild where they're in close proximity to other killer whales, whether it's northern resident killer whales or um, bigs killer whales. And we still haven't detected any evidence of mating. So we haven't detected any calves in the population that we could assign to these other killer whale populations. Right. So, these, so they're, they're really, just staying together, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So really, our focus needs to be on the other factors that we can manage um, to help support the health of the population. Okay. So what about the other factors that we're talking about here? What about the external factors? Are those improving? Are there things that we can do in that regard? I think that those definitely need to continue to be a focus. And, and you know, we need to think of it in a kind of holistic way where we're thinking about all the different aspects that are affecting the population. 
um, because none of them happen in isolation. And there can often be synergistic effects where, you know, you get this kind of compounding effect of different factors. So things like um, prey abundance and healthy environments and, you know, keeping toxic pollutants out of the environment and um, making sure that they have the best chance possible because, inbreeding um, itself isn't going to result in, you know, the early death of an in- individual. It, it affects their fitness and their, um, uh, so we, we need to make sure that they have, you know, the best chance possible in the, the healthiest environment um, to support them. Okay. So then what are your ne- next steps in your research here? So for us, the next step is to compare this to uh, the neighboring northern resident killer whale population. And we've already um, kicked off that second phase of the study with our friends and collaborators up in British Columbia. And this is going to be a really important piece for helping us to kind of put this, put the southern resident killer whale inbreeding estimates into context. So if we can compare it to their neighboring northern residents um, and see what, what their inbreeding levels look like, and we know that their population trends have been in a much more positive light than the southern resident killer whales. I think that's going to be really key for us to understand how important the inbreeding um, is on the southern resident killer whales recovery. All right, Dr. Parsons, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk some Nexus because we heard in the news yesterday that the Nexus program is getting back up and running at full speed. So Canada will be back to conducting interviews. They managed to reach a, you know, an agreement with the United States on how they should be conducted. And we know there is a huge backlog of people waiting to get their Nexus. And you know what else there is? People who are apparently having their Nexus cards revoked, too. So let's talk about all of this with the help of Len Saunders, of course, immigration lawyer just across the border in Blaine. Good morning, Len. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So I'm, I thought this would be like good news. The Nexus program is getting back up and running. Well, kind of. Um, it's not 100% back up and running, but I think it's another step in the right direction, given that they have not done interviews in Canada for over three years. So I think now we're going to start seeing some of that backlog getting chipped away at. Okay, so this is that they're going to start doing interviews now in Canada again. They said they should be back up to the full speed of doing interviews within, what, a couple of weeks? Yeah, so it's kind of like a rollout. There's about 10 airports, Vancouver Airport, Toronto, all across Canada where they have pre-flight clearance where you actually go through U.S. Customs while you're in Canada. And those are the actual offices that are reopening under this kind of two-step program. So you're interviewed by a Canadian officer outside of U.S. Customs and then an American officer once you actually go through security and before you hop on your flight to the U.S. Okay, so that will do this. But what are you hearing about people who are getting Nexus cards or trying to get them renewed? Well, so what I've been seeing, it's interesting, since December, I'm getting lots of calls for individuals who've had cards like me for 20 years. And what they're doing is they're just doing a simple renewal, expecting no problem, they'll get another five-year card. And not only are they getting a denial on their reapplication, but their existing card is being revoked And the only reason they're being told is that they're not considered a trusted traveler. Okay. And what are the circumstances? Like, are are people, like, breaking the rules? 
No, so usually if someone is not eligible for Nexus, it's because they've had an immigration violation. They've had a customs violation where they've paid an actual fine, either going into Canada or the U.S., or they've had a criminal conviction or a criminal, you know, a past criminal arrest, let's say, for, for drugs. So, but these are people who've been trusted travelers for 20 years, and they're being told no and aren't being given a reason. It's no different than if I gave you a key to my house, I live next to you, and I say, okay, I trust you, here's a key to my house, and then five years later saying, I don't trust you anymore, give me my key back, but I give you no reason. People who I've talked to have said, well, you know, there was an incident, like I had a potato farmer from Ladner come in the other day, and he said, well, I remember about 10 years ago, I was importing some commercial potatoes and told there was too much dirt on the potatoes, and I have to make sure there's not as much dirt on my potatoes. Another client I've known for years in White Rock, she asked if she could bring tomatoes over the border a number of years ago, and the officer said, yes, if they're sliced. So she brought some sliced tomatoes and was told, no, you can't, but was never given a fine. So these are people who are giving warnings um, or don't even remember if they were given a warning, but they're having their cards taken away. So they've cranked up, I guess, the requirements on who's eligible and who's not. And all of these people have done ombudsman appeals and nobody's heard back if they're going to be reinstated. So what, what do you think is going on here? Well, it's interesting. I hate to say it. It's, it's only the Americans who are doing these revocations, not the Canadians. It's almost like they don't care about the program and they almost want it to fail. Right? There's been no real move on the Americans trying to fix any of this backlog. So, for some reason, they're now considering anyone who's had a warning is no longer a trusted traveler. And that kind of, you know, that's in direct contradiction of what the program is. It's, you know, you have to have an actual violation that's documented, a fine or a criminal conviction. So I don't know if they're going to lose many members because of these, you know, heightened requirements. Is it possible now, though, that, you know, every, now that both countries are back on the same page with Nexus, that it could start to get back to more of a normal situation? Well, hopefully, but it's been three years, and there just seems to be, you know, all of these problems with the system. I even spoke to a very senior officer at Vancouver Airport, American officer, asking him about this new program, and his comment is, it's not going to be that smooth. So even though they have this new two-step program at all the bank or all the airports in Canada that have U.S. customs. I don't think it's going to be that smooth, but it's a step in the right direction. I checked last night on availability of Nexus appointments in Blaine, and it's only a month out. I checked again this morning, and most of those are now taken. So there seems to be more openings if you're kind of proactive and you keep checking, or I think there's like an app you can even get, which you know, every five minutes checks for openings and then lets you know. So there, there are openings as long as you're diligent and you, you know, try to get your interview. For most people who are doing renewals, they just get the card in the mail. So they've bypassed a lot of um, in-person renewals. I think they realized they were never going to get rid of this quarter million backlog if they kept, you know, interviewing every single person. Right. Okay. So when you talk about that backlog, though, I, I feel like it's still going to take a long time to get through all those people. Well, exactly. It's gone from a quarter million to about 400,000. It's now back to a quarter million. So is it getting better? Maybe. 
But it used to be you could apply and get an interview and an approval within a month or two. Now they're saying 12 to 14 months. So that's a long time, especially when people are looking at coming down over the you know, over spring break, over the summertime, because the border lineups, as you know, can sometimes be hours. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, the border. I feel like we have our enthusiasm back for going across the border, but I'm not sure border agencies fully understand that. No, there's a lack of common sense. A lot of these officers really don't travel back and forth, especially the American officers very much. It's interesting because one of the people who contacted me with his nexus uh, revocation recently was actually a CBSA officer on the Canadian side. So there, there's a great example of someone who's trusted enough to be a, a Canadian officer inspecting people going back and forth, but he's not eligible for the nexus program. It just it shows the silliness of the program right now. All right. Well, I guess we're going to check back in with you in a couple of weeks and find out how this is going. So, Len, thank you. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, these days we hear that artificial intelligence is going to change so many things. It can write us a paper. It could tell you what to cook for dinner just by looking at your fridge. I mean, the list goes on. But could it soon influence going to church? Generative AI is becoming all-knowing. What will that influence be on religion? Well, Dr. Neil MacArthur is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Manitoba and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So what have you been thinking? Like, as you're watching all this, you know, advancement happen with AI, what have you been thinking about this in terms of the impact on religion? Well, I think the first thing is that the, I'm looking at the way people are reacting to it, which is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different reactions, but one of the things people are really having is a sort of sense of awe and wonder about it and just really being taken aback in its sheer power. And for me, I think that's really at the, at the root of where a lot of our religious faith comes from. It's this sort of sense of awe at the sheer power of what the universe can produce. And so when I look at you know, how people are going to start reacting to it and how they're already starting to react to it. I think that it's going to mean that they're going to start looking at it as some kind of higher power. They're going to start looking at it as the basis for new religions. Right. So you're saying if we're asking it all these questions and it's giving us answers, that that is kind of naturally what would follow? Uh, I, I think that for at least some people, obviously not not for everybody, but I think that if you look at, you know, what are the sorts of things that people have used as the basis for their faith, uh, AI is, you know, endlessly creative. It's capable of all these absolutely amazing things. It, it seems to know just about everything. It doesn't always get everything right these days, but it seems to know, it has, has this almost limitless knowledge. It's immortal, and it can kind of guide you in your life if you look, if you look to it for advice. And so I think those are the, and it will, it will also tell you kind of the answers to your deepest questions. And I think those are the sorts of things that, you know, we've, we've seen prophets and deities um, do. That, that's dangerous, though, isn't it? Starting to ask a question. We're supposed to be the ones in charge here, not asking, you know, AI what we should be doing. I think there's for sure risks. I think there's lots of different risks. Um, but, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I think people have found faith in all kinds of places. And I think this ultimately may, I mean, I think you're right, it is potentially dangerous. But I also think it's potentially beneficial. I think it may help people find meaning in a world that is changing really fast. But you're a glass half full person, aren't you, Dr. MacArthur? <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's just my nature. <laughs> I think you are too. So I guess the the tricky part here then would be the people who are programming artificial intelligence, the people who are writing that code, who are telling it what to do. It all depends on what they what they're 
putting into this computer, right? That, that is for sure true. I mean, I think, I think one thing that's happening is the people who are controlling it aren't totally controlling it. It's doing things that they completely cannot predict. But I think it is also true that they have to be responsible. They have to make sure that they're not deliberately manipulating people and they're not, um, you know, they're not letting it say things that are dangerous or that might be right. uh, divisive or that might cause people to do things that we don't want them to do. Now, historically, you mentioned this there, but maybe you could give us some perspective on that. Where are some of the, you know, places over time where people have looked to for faith? You know, people have looked to an incredible variety of uh, I guess you could say sources for faith. I mean, um, people have worshipped ancestors. Um, they've worshipped uh, natural things in nature that they see as incredibly powerful. Um, there's lots of people who worship uh, extraterrestrials, actually, or what they believe are the messages coming from extraterrestrials or things that uh, show signs of extraterrestrial life. Um, so it's it's pretty amazing how much diversity there is, actually. People have worshipped, you know, works of there's a Religion, I don't know if it's totally serious, but there's a religion that's dedicated to the worship of the soccer star Maradona. <laughs> what, is, what do you think that tells us, though, about human nature, It really, and, that, and our desire to believe in something? I think it shows that, yeah, we want answers to life's big questions, and we want meaning in the universe, and we want to find beauty in the universe as well. And I think that, you know, all those things are things that people will find in this technology, potentially. But is there spirituality in asking AI about faith? Well, I think ultimately faith is going to be a reflection of ourselves. And I think this is a reflection of ourselves. And I think that, yes, I think that we can find spirituality. I mean, I think at its best, AI religion will just be a recognition of the sheer creative power of the human mind and of what the universe can produce. Because I think, you know, that's what we're seeing, is that we're seeing this is something that is, is dangerous for sure, but also very, very powerful, and I think potentially very beautiful. Isn't religion, though, something that everybody agrees on, that this is what we believe in? And the thing about AI is that it's always changing. <laughs> that is for sure true. I mean, I think that um, it will be different. Let me put it this way. I think that AI-based religions will be different than traditional religions in that uh, there will be uh, an almost endless variety of doctrines and people will believe that they have direct access to uh, divine wisdom. I mean, I think there's, there's obviously been a lot of theological dispute, and there's lots of different religions, and there's lots of different disagreements within religion. So I think this will be a difference of degree rather than kind. But I think it will be interesting to see how it evolves. I mean, I think, you know, there's lots of... Uh, there's lots of ways this can still be positive, and just because people disagree doesn't mean they have to fight. I mean, I, you know, I sort of look to the online communities that are devoted, say, to interpreting Taylor Swift lyrics, and people are disagreeing endlessly about what they all mean, but, um, you know, they're doing it in a friendly way, and they're having fun. Right, because I was wondering, like, how, isn't faith something that we share? Isn't that one of the hallmarks of it? Well, it is, but I think it's also deeply personal, and so I think that um, I think that people will recognize maybe if they're if they're basing their religion on AI that there's a common source and that there may be some disagreements, but I think they may be able to integrate those disagreements into their belief because the common thing will still be the sort of uh, the, the belief in the beauty of AI. Hmm. So do you, do you have any concerns about this, though? Yeah, I have lots of concerns, for sure. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, as you say, I'm, I'm a glass half full person. I'm not you a glass are. full full person. <laughs> Um, you know, I don't think the glass is overflowing. I think that um, I think that when we look at the fact that these AI are owned by corporations, and yeah. corporations have interests. They want to make money. Uh, they may want people to buy products. They may want their data. They may want 
people to support different policies or different candidates. So I think we have to be super aware, and I think government has to be willing to keep an eye on this for sure and step in and make sure that these corporations are behaving responsibly, which unfortunately they don't have a great record on. Well, no, they, they, like, they don't always act in the individual's interest. They act in their interest. That doesn't seem to be the hallmark, though, of spirituality and faith. Well, no, I mean, I, I mean, I think there's lots of people who have profited from religion um, and lots of people mm, who... Who have deliberately profited from religion? I don't know if that's a great example. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that we have to we have to keep an eye on this for sure. I think there's there's reasons to be concerned. As I say, there's still the the, the part of the glass that's empty, and I think that um, I think we can manage it. I think that we can manage it, but I think we can't be hands off. That's um, so very true. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, this was lots of fun. Thanks so much for having me. It was lots of fun. That's Dr. Neil MacArthur, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Manitoba. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it's time for some true crime, and there's nobody better to talk about true crime with than global senior crime reporter Nancy Hicks, who joins us now, of course, also the host of Crime Beat. Good morning, Nancy. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, we love to talk true crime here on the show, so thank you for doing this (laughs) monthly segment with us, and this is the first one. You must love to talk true crime, too. I mean, I have been covering crime for a very long time, so it's definitely what I know. So uh, <laughs> the podcast gives me a good opportunity to share the cases that I've covered. No kidding. The podcast is hugely popular. You're back for another season of this. How do you pick the stories that you focus on? It's so hard. Um, like there's not a specific recipe to decide what I'm going to share. A lot has to do with how things come together. And you know, I know this probably sounds a little crazy, but sometimes I think they come together when they're meant to come together. I, I was working on one case for quite a while, and I, it was frustrating me, frustrating me, and I couldn't track people down that I needed to track down. And then on the weekend, uh, somebody contacted me and said, hey, do you remember this guy? And I said, yes, I've been trying to find him. Oh, I'm having dinner with him right now. Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes yes. they just come together when they're, when they're supposed to. Um, but, you know, I share the stories that I've covered for Global News uh, for the past 20-some years. So, basically, I know the cases because I've been involved from covering them when they happened uh, right through the court system. So, And I often stay in touch with a lot of the families that I meet uh, during this. So, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to give them a voice as well, which is a huge priority for me. Right. And there seems to be such a fascination these days with true crime is every case, does every case, do you think, have some kind of mystery at its heart? Like the why in all of these cases can be fascinating? Yeah. And, you know, some cases you never really get the why, which is really hard because I think people want that, you know, black and white uh, answers. Like, we know why this happened. And sometimes that doesn't happen. I'm working on a podcast series right now that'll be out um, next month. And uh, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but that was one of the challenges was trying to figure out why, like some of these are just senseless. And I think that that's, that's part of this is, you know, a lot of the people that are the offenders in these cases, you know, they don't need a reason why they they're senseless. All right. Let's talk about some of those cases that you're going to be profiling for this season. Now tell me about the one involving the German tourist. That was such an interesting case. Um, it just happened a couple of years ago. There was a family visiting here from Germany, and they were touring all through Alberta. 
Um, specifically, the father was a huge fan of the Rocky Mountains. Like he came to Canada in the 70s and he always wanted to bring his family back and show them around. So he wanted to take a scenic route home um, to Calgary uh, from visiting family. And that's when tragedy struck, like completely out of the blue. They're driving, they're minding their own business. And the family didn't even really understand what happened. Um, all of a sudden, the vehicle goes off the road. Um, they know something's wrong with the father. He's not responsive. They call police, and they realize that he's been shot. Um, so it's a completely random drive-by shooting, and the father gets hit. And uh, I remember covering it when it happened. We wanted to be able to speak to this family, and it, it didn't look good. Like, nobody knew if he was going to survive. He was airlifted uh, to Calgary Hospital, and then he was later airlifted to um, nearby his home in Germany for more medical treatment. And uh, I was able to make contact with that family, and they came back to Canada last summer, and I connected with them to share this story. And it's just an amazing story of survival. It's uh, you definitely need to check it out. And as a side note, there is also a Crime Beat TV episode, the TV documentary series based on the, the podcast uh, about this case. So both platforms have right. a little bit different content, but both are just fascinating. And the father is an amazing individual. And so is the son. Both of them uh, talk to me for the it, podcast. It's the randomness, though, too, isn't it, Nancy, that gets us sometimes, right? And the, sometimes we, we watch these shows and listen to these podcasts because we think, oh, my God. And it's like just by the randomness of that, that could have been me. Oh, fully. Like they were fully minding their own business, you know, out for a scenic drive, taking in, you know, the atmosphere out there. And then like they had nothing could have predicted this. And it was completely random. You know, there was no reason for it, except that a couple of teenagers were out and up to no good that day. So Wow. Uh, let's also talk about some of the cases that you kind of revisit, right? Things that happened decades ago, but I know there's these days there's so many technological breakthroughs that allow cases to advance. And I know one of the ones that you're talking about involves a serial rapist in Calgary. Yeah, it, this case uh, was really, really frustrating for police when it happened because you have these victims and it's horrific crimes. And it's happening in a specific area. So people in the that lived on Hemlock Crescent at the time were like, you just didn't know when it was going to happen. It was completely random as well. Um, and police were having a really hard time being able to track down any suspects. They really ramped up their patrols of the area, but they weren't able to figure out who had done this cr- these crimes. And just when they thought, well, maybe he stopped, you know, there was another victim. This was really, really difficult. Um, And then at one point, the crime did stop. Like, it just ended. Um, And nobody really understood why. Um, And then years later, there were advancements in uh, DNA. And we had a really great detective take on the case. And that's when uh, they were able to figure out who did it. And, 
it was interesting covering this case and the court process to find out why he was doing these horrific sexual assaults on random people and then why he ended up stopping. Um, so we answer those questions in that episode as well. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. And I know you've also got a two-parter on, and this one is, is really special because this talks about the creation of two rival gangs. And this really had an impact in Calgary, didn't it? And we see that here in Vancouver too. Yeah, and there's ties, obviously. So people will recognize some of the ties back and forth. I actually just received a message from somebody from BC who said, oh, I recognize some of the players because there are ties throughout the country, especially to uh, Vancouver and the lower mainland. So um, this started as a petty falling out between a group of high school friends. And it somehow, and there's different theories as to what led to this falling out. Um, but there was deep-seated hate between these two sides. And both sides were involved in organized crime, but it became more about hunting each other and killing the other players than anything else. And um, I take you through the gang war that lasted. I mean, it started in the early 2000s, and there was a major breakthrough at about the halfway point, but there's still... Uh, targeted killings happening. Um, And that's what I talk about in part two, is how police were able to crack through this gang war. And and just, you know, they didn't end the violence, but they were able to end it at least on one side, and they're still working on the other side. So it's fascinating to know what lengths these gangs would go to. And the one side is still very involved and very powerful in, you know, Mm-hmm. organized crime so okay i look forward to that so when do these episodes start where can we find them you can find them wherever you listen to your favorite podcast um there's a new episode out today that's part two of and the conclusion of the crossfire and if anybody ever wants to listen a week early to these episodes uh you can listen on amazon music ad free and a week early but otherwise just tune in every second tuesday and uh, there's a new episode out Always something for us to talk about, that means. That's great. Nancy, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. That's Nancy Hicks, Senior Crime Reporter for Global News and host of Crime Beat. Great podcast, which you can find everywhere you listen to your podcast. And she will be joining us for a monthly crime segment so we can talk about true crime on Tuesdays. Uh, And you know what? There's no endless amount of fascinating stories about that out there for sure. So check out Crime Beat if you can.